Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. History is bunk, or so the saying goes. But what does the Mortification of Spin team with its resident church historian have to say about that? Is it really important for Christians to study church history? Let's find out. Well, thanks for joining us today. There's a famous quote from Henry Ford. It, it might be apocryphal, but I really hope it's true because it kind of fits my image of him, where Henry Ford said, history is bunk. And I thought, no better person to ask about that assessment of the value of history than one of our own MOS team members here. Of course, many of you know uh, Carl Truman as a podcaster, but on the side, he also teaches history every once in a while at uh, Westminster Seminary. And so, Carl, um, is there any value to what you do? Is there any value to what you studied and what you teach and what you write about? Or is it really just kind of a big con job in order for you to, you know, have a cushy living? It's a big con job, just Uh, have a cushy living. You've rumbled me. (laughs) No, I I think it's, I I think a knowledge of history is important for a number of reasons. Uh, Not least that it pays my mortgage. Mm -hmm. But... I also think that history, a knowledge of history is critical for understanding identity in the present, if I could put it that way. And it's interesting you cite Henry Ford because that, I think he he did actually say something like that. But I've recently been reading uh, Russell Kirk's autobiography, The Sword of Imagination. Hope you're impressed, Todd. I'm reading. Let me just, let me just pause because this, ladies and gentlemen, this is a time to celebrate (laughs) Carl Truman, who I might add, in his younger days, was a wonderful Thatcherite. I was. Which is member a great of the party. Thing. I was a party member. Exactly. So he has good roots. He's, yeah. he's got some good raw material to work with. Is reading that wonderful conservative philosopher, Russell Kirk. So I, and you also read Roger Scruton, too. Uh, one I of do. Countrymen. I, th- I think what I've come to understand is that I'm really an Or- I'm a George Orwell guy. Mm-hmm. Orwell had left leanings, but ultimately he was English. Yeah. And I think English nationhood and the class system shapes the way you think in a very conservative way, ultimately. So I'm kind of coming home, I think, at this point so, in time. So anyway, it's just cause for people like me to celebrate. Carl, I, I could, still not, could still not bear to watch Fox News, by the way. But, <laughs> but MSNBC man till the day I die. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, listen, don't ruin it all at this point. But, but proceed, yeah. please. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, in Russell Kirk's autobiography, he actually talks about Henry Ford, and Ford did give some of his money to historical projects. So even That's Ford, I think, is misrepresented as this historical iconoclast, because ultimately... He also uh, did a lot of business with Stalin in the early he did. Too. Yeah, He was a very interesting figure. He also, uh, I think, uh, funded the republication of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yes, he did. Yes, in America, which is a major anti-Semitic uh, mm-hmm. tract, of course, which played a, an unfortunate role in the, in the Holocaust. Henry Ford, obnoxious human being, but he did have <laughs> some interest in history. And I think what it points to is the fact that, you know, nobody pops out of the womb as a self-creating human being. We are all shaped by the environment in which we live. We are all shaped by 
the organizations we join, by the people we connect with. We're part of an ongoing history. And understanding that history is, is liberating. Mm-hmm. If I could put it this way, I, I draw an analogy in class between studying history and emigration. You know, I emigrated 14 nearly 15 years ago to the United States. One of the interesting things about emigration, well, one of the unfortunate things is you end up not belonging anywhere because you never quite belong to the country you've come to. But the country you've left behind changes so rapidly, you don't belong back there anymore either. But the other thing it does is it allows you to understand how much of your background was culturally and historically conditioned if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. You begin to realize that the way you think about things is profoundly shaped by the history of the nation in which you grew up. So, for example, coming to the United States, it's, it's interesting to me the, the function that the flag plays. You know, mm-hmm. outside of, I think outside of, of Ulster in the United Kingdom, flags fulfill very little function compared to the way the yeah. flag functions in America. Your whole calendar is built around American history, July the 4th, Thanksgiving, Labor Day. The way you measure time is shaped by the history of your nation. And it's the same back home. We have Guy Fawkes Day. We have the May Day back holiday. Uh, we have, you wear masks? <laughs> you all wear masks on Guy no, Fawkes Day? No, we, we, as, as I've said before in this program, we, we, burn, <laughs> favorite parts. we burn a traitor in effigy unless you live in the village of Lewis, in which case you burn the Pope in effigy <laughs> in November the 5th. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is that the rhythm of your year is historical. How you think about life is shaped, not by your own personal biography, so much as by the life of, of your nation and the history of your nation. So, so, so apply that then, Carl, uh, to, to the person listening yeah. who, who, who would ask, why, why would it be important for me as a Christian to have a good grasp of church history? Because the way the church thinks, acts, and behaves is historically conditioned. Mm-hmm. For example, we've all just gone through the Christmas season. Why? Yeah. You know, why do I always complain to my elders that they make me do a baby Jesus sermon at some point during Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> my roots lie in Puritanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, my el- one of my elders, despite his pleas to the contrary, I'm pretty sure it's Anglo-Catholicism that he's connected <laughs> somewhere down the line. Uh, but that would be an example. But then we use language like Trinity, incarnation. These are not mm-hmm. uh, words you find in the Bible, but right. the church considers them important. Why? Well, there's a history behind those terms. Yesterday in my church, we recited the Nicene Creed. Why do we recite the Nicene Creed? Not simply because Christians all over the world today recite it and we're expressing our unity with them, but also we're expressing our unity with Christians down through the centuries who've recited that creed. Then yesterday, last night, I preached on the Incarnation. I was able to zero in on, on the of the same substance clause in that creed. And I talked yeah. a little bit about the history of that to show people why it made a difference to how they think as a Christian, why it should make a difference to how we pray as Christians. So... We are historical beings. The, the choice we make is, do we acknowledge that, understand it, and are we therefore liberated by it? Or do we refuse to acknowledge that and therefore remain, if I could put it, the unwitting slaves of it? So you mentioning, you mentioning um, uh, the word Trinity and, and, and some of the creedal formulations, yeah. is it a fair, would it be a fair connection for me to say, that in some radical Anabaptist movements yeah. and their typical distaste for, for history, yeah, because that would it, make them Catholic, could, could there be a connection between some of the doctrinal problems that some of the radical Anabaptist movements yeah, have and their distaste for history? 
Yeah, you're, you're thinking about your previous church, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, never even came to mind. <laughs> never came to my mind either. Mm. Absolutely, because I think that one of the things the church has done over time is it's, it's tested various hypotheses and propositions. Right. And those that have stood the test of time are the ones that we've inherited through the creeds and confessions of the church. Mm-hmm. Why would one want to reinvent the wheel? Every day, I don't go out to my car in the morning and think, well, I need to reinvent the combustion engine. I need to redesign my wheels before I can drive to work. No, I'm happy to, to, if you like, enjoy the history of the motor car in a way that allows me to get to work efficiently every day without thinking about it too much. The so Lord in other words, you're, you're saying that probably we won't, as mortification of spin or, or at, at your church, you probably won't compose a new Christological creed, for instance, because the ones we have are, are sufficient and good. I can't imagine what you're thinking of there, Todd, but <laughs> absolutely not. You know, the, the, I sometimes get students making smart-aleck comments about the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian formula. My, my response is, you know, they may not be perfect, but they've done the job for over 1,500 years all over the world. If you can come up with a formula that's going to do the job just as well all over the world for the next 1,500 years, give me a call. Until you come up with that, I don't want to hear from you. because I'm I wonder if anybody's going to try that. <laughs> oh, well, that's another topic for another day. My favorite was a, a student asking me once. Uh, we, we got this conference on the Westminster Standards at Westminster, and a student put up a hand and said, you know, these standards, they were composed by a bunch of dead white guys three mm. or 400 years ago. Uh, I wanted to say to her, well, that's an American category for a start, not, not a category that they've used in the 17th century. But what on earth does this have to do with my ministry? And my answer was, you know, there are My ministry. Of, yeah, I said there are millions of Christians all over the world that have found the doctrines contained in this document to be very helpful to their daily lives. I think the question you need to ask yourself is, what has your ministry got to do with the church? Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, what I wanted to ask you is, like, have you noticed any changes for better or for worse in your career of being a professor of church history, just with the attitude and the tone of your students coming in towards history? Yeah. I think it, it's odd. I would say that I've noticed students generally coming in more ignorant of history, but more eager to find out about history, if I could put it that yeah, way. That's- I think part of the problem today is the the rabid destruction of history that's happening all around us. And I would say, you know, when we look, for example, at uh, debates about same-sex marriage, I would say that's as much a debate about the destruction of history as it is about sexuality. I mean, that's a, that's a, a whole different discussion. Mm-hmm. But I would say that's symptomatic of a way that we live in an age where history is being systematically destroyed across the board. That leaves people rootless because, as I said at the start, we're historical beings. We're shaped by a history. And if you wipe that history off the face of the map, then we are left as rootless people floating around, nowhere to go. And, and I've noticed, I think, in, in what 23 years of teaching history at, at higher education level now, a greater and greater thirst among many students for finding out about history because that anchors us it gives us an identity mm-hmm. we're not self-inventing mm-hmm. that's we what i found myself up in a tradition right. when i grew up in a in a church where i felt like you know i thought the king james version dropped from heaven itself mm-hmm. and that you know the whole dispensational end times was mm-hmm. you know the only way that it was ever taught you said just you know, like todd before when i met him <laughs> <laughs> and, but to find, you know, the rich history that the church has been through and to see how um, fairly new 
the doctrine that I grew up in really was. Um, It was so eye-opening for me, and and I then had this longing to to learn a lot more. But I came, you know, as a young adult, I came as very ignorant to church history. And and I will say, this is anecdotal, but my observations of being a pastor is that uh, there's a lot of Christian laypersons out there that are really interested in learning more about church history. They may not know where to go, but they really want to know. So right now, and again, this is anecdotal, but I'm seeing this repeated. Um, two of our adult Sunday school classes right now, we, we, we just, we don't have, we, we change every quarter what, what's being taught. But uh, one of them's on the Puritans, and one of them is a broad view of church history. And they're by far the two best attended classes. We have over 100 people in those two classes. Oh. One on the Puritans, one on church history. Yeah. And um, uh, people are very much interested. They want to learn more, I've found, and they're excited about it. That's a good thing. So what are, some, teach it well. what are some books that you two would recommend to, uh, you know, for people just wanting to learn and getting started? Yeah. I wouldn't go even to books, first of all. I would suggest check out iTunes. Check okay. out what's available online. Um, iTunes University, yeah. iTunes University, there's some good stuff there. Uh, one of the problems with history, I think, is it's a very prosaic reason for, for people not liking history. It's generally very badly taught. Right. Uh, History has to be taught. I, I think history has to be taught what I would say critically. I like to th- think of myself as teaching critical history, and that is history where you're thinking about why did this thing happen in this way at this point in time? Why did this person speak in this way in this situation? It's the why question, not the this thing happened there and then another thing Just happened. The information after. dump, Just which the makes information it so dump. boring for God. young children to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I would also I, I would recommend Christians read general history best way to learn to do history is to read good history. Mm-hmm. Don't just read Christian history. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go onto Amazon. Rummage around in the history section and get books written by good historians mm-hmm. on subjects you're interested in because it's the way of thinking that you want to cultivate as much as the information you want to put in. Yeah. I, I would echo the go to iTunes U um, to find some good lectures. Um, redeem your commute by listening to good church history. And, and I mean, I'll put in the plug. Carl didn't mention it, but I'll, but I'll put in a plug. Go to iTunes U and look up Carl's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would be a great way for you to, to redeem your commute. It's, <laughs> but, it's a crime that they it, give that stuff away for free. It, you have no it's idea. It's wonderful for a housewife. I'm telling you. I you have think no it's, idea how much it pains me to recommend Carl's stuff like this, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Go <laughs> iTunes U and click on myself. I will also say, I will also say, if, because I think this is oftentimes neglected, in, in Reformed churches that, that do teach church history, what do we teach? We church re- teach Reformation history, and that's great. But what I've found is there's a lot of people who are hungry to know about the first epoch of, of church history, and um, I've, I've recommended this book before. Uh, Carl, I heard about it from you, but, but Robert Wilkins' book, The First Thousand Years, Robert is an Wilkins. excellent introduction to The First Robert Thousand Wilkins. Years, and it's, it's, not in, it's not an intimidating book. It's well-researched, but it's readable. Wilkin pays careful attention uh, to the influence of the rise of Islam, which is oftentimes left out of those studies. And it's very, very... Do you know that that book took him so long to write? It's just an introductory book, but he took several years out to learn Arabic Mm. so he could write this chapter on Islam. I love Robert Wilkin. Can I I give you my self-aggrandizing Robert Wilkin story? Well, I I couldn't go on if you didn't. (laughs) I'm... I'm sitting at the Union League having dinner in New York at a, a, some banquet thing, and I feel this hand on my shoulder and this grandfatherly voice saying, my, 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 
there's a real Protestant in the house tonight. Right? <laughs> and it was Robert Wilkin. I thought, well, Robert Wilkin recognized me and two, he thinks I'm a real Protestant. <laughs> it, was oh, like that that it was like that moment in Wayne's world when Wayne and Garth meet Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just say, I'm scum, I'm not worthy, I'm scum. <laughs> and, and incidentally, if you're not from Philadelphia and you don't know what the Union League is, it's a little kind of Greek cafe in the back of a 7-Eleven. Hey, um, so. I was hanging around with all the right-wingers last night, that night. Oh, good for I you. Was the, I was the one liberal I, in that. I would, I would also say, I would also say um, Wilkins' book, um, uh, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, is an excellent book. Yeah. Loved yeah. reading that book. And The Spirit um, of Early Christianity. Uh-huh. That's one of the compulsory reads in my ancient church course at Westminster. Yeah. Students have to read that. Again, yeah. one of the most truly delightful studies of, of yeah. ancient church history. I, I would also throw in, and, and this isn't, I, I don't know if this is church history per se, but it's kind of a philosophical history. And again, I almost didn't do it because Carl has a chapter in it, but, I, but it is a, a very good book um, called Revolutions in Worldview. Um, edited by um, Andrew Hoffecker. <laughs> I remember that. That's the article where I say there is no worldview, isn't it? I got complaints from people saying, well, you've got Truman writing this article. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually a very helpful book because it's kind of an intellectual history of it is. That, that, that follows along kind of the impact of the church. And, and I, found it, I, found it very, I found that very helpful. The chapter on the Renaissance is absolutely outstanding. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Absolutely outstanding. <laughs> So those are a few things. Uh, uh, Amy, what have you read that you would recommend to lay people, have, whether it's biography or church history service? Well, that's what I was just going to say is um, we've talked a lot about time periods, but I think that one way to really get lay people um, personally interested more is to, to offer some good biographies. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, there's been so many good ones. I, don't, I can't think of off the top of my head, but I will recommend that um, – the Crossways new series on theologians uh, on the Christian life because it covers different theologians from different time periods. And um, so you can learn about not only what the doctrines that they were uh, protecting or formulating more clearly or up against, but um, also just the ethical struggles and and all the different personal parts of their lives as well. I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, let me just, before we wrap up, let me just plug this also. Again, as we think about why church history and the value of church history, let us remember the numerous times where God called his people, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And in that sense, I would say church history is doxological. Mm. It, is, it, it ought to, to have a doxological element in it where we, together with thousands of years of God's people, say, remember the Lord, look at what the Lord has done. And um, that's been a way that church history has served me very well, is it's reminded me of God's providence and his care and protection of his church um, and, and, yeah. uh, and his providence over his, uh, over his purposes. So, uh, so we, we encourage you, go, go find the good stuff, listen to the good lectures, and um, look for ways to, um, to work doxology in your heart uh, because of that. Well, thanks for joining us. We don't believe that history is bunk, but uh, <laughs> some of those who write church history might write bunk, but not Carl Truman. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, he, the, the next program needs to, to prominently feature the works of Amy Bird and totally ignore Carl Truman because this one, <laughs> this one was just a, a total vanity project, I, I think. For our, for our I, I think there's more. We need at least another four or five podcasts <laughs> on my contribution yeah. to, yeah, to Christian exactly. life. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, we will uh, we'll talk to you next time. 
Don't know much about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. For those of you who are convinced that church history is worthwhile, we have a few copies of an audio set called Justification in Church History to give away. In this set, speakers Derek Thomas, Michael Horton, and Ligon Duncan consider the church's understanding of the doctrine of justification as they answer questions such as, How did the early church writers present justification? What were the issues in the medieval church? And how do other views, such as Roman Catholicism, understand justification? Enter to win your copy at mortificationofspin.org. And come back next week when the gang talks to Ellen Dykus, Women's Ministry Coordinator at Harvest USA, about the toxic effects of pornography on the entire family and how to counsel spouses of addicts through the struggles pornography brings. Why do you think that is? Why is it so hard to talk about that? And how can we foster a better culture and environment in our own churches for people who are in these situations to be able to feel like they can approach you and, and talk to a, a, a lay person or a pastor when they need help in that area? Yeah, well, I think there's lots of reasons why these are hard topics to talk about. They're sensitive, they're tender, they've been seen as very private, and there's a lot of shame connected to struggles in these areas, whether if it's a woman or man who has been ensnared themselves in sexual sin, or if you're in a marriage that's been impacted by sexual sin. So I think in general, these are areas that are that are hard to talk about. Uh, the body of Christ has um, often been very silent about these areas or have not talked about them in ways that have really invited people to come out, in a sense, to ask for help. And I think women in particular, I've had many women who have said this to me, is that they say, my church is, is not talking about these areas very much, but if they do, it's almost always referred to only as a man's problem. Right. So women strugglers, um, I think, just dive under the pew, if I could put it that way, in more shame. As one woman said, Ellen, I guess I'm, I'm just like a man. And this was a woman who was a pornography addict. Join us for that conversation. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to hear more from Todd, Amy, and Carl and to enter to win Justification in Church History. Did you get that Mr. I, Rogers uh, cardigan for Christmas? <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a cardigan, a watch, some tobacco, and a bottle of alcohol. The fantastic middle-aged guy's Christmas. Make I, sure like, more I like cardigans. Don't knock them. 
makes you look more neighborly. Brilliant, yeah. The awful thing is, I put my wife's reading glasses on for a joke last night and suddenly realized I could see stuff <laughs> that I hadn't seen yeah. for years. Yeah. So I'm falling apart. At the, I'm falling apart at the seams. Mm. I really am. I re- I'd give myself another six months, and I'm I'm pushing up daisies. It's okay. it's it's going. I think it's working with you two plus the mad woman that's done it. Aaron is the one <laughs> beam of sunlight in this whole sorry. <laughs> I think. Well, look at this. Look what you guys are doing to me. <laughs> I look Poor like Jim, I look like Jimmy Hendrix. He's becoming one of the balding and bitter now. <laughs> hey, stick with us, man. We've been there. Yeah. We we can show you the ropes of this ball. <laughs> At, uh, do you know they accused my Amy said, "Where did you get the Mister Rogers cardigan from?" <laughs> Just telling Katrina how you insulted her wedding, pre- uh, <laughs> wedding present, Christmas present. It's only because you're wearing it. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, be told to embrace if, it here. If a normal person had been wearing it, we wouldn't have thought it was a big deal. Exactly. They would have looked distinguished. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you're all scum. 